0: I recommend that you walk out of this door, you don't let me cut into your brain at all. And I turned to him and I said, surely there's something I can do. Cause you know, I'm a resourceful person. Surely there's something I can do. And he just said to me, it's impossible. That moment, I just galvanized into action. He said the best thing he could ever say. He said it meanly and he was very dismissive, but it was the best thing I could have heard because I radically moved into action. Expanding
1: possibilities, the Mindset Zone. I'm your host, Anna Malikian. And before we start, please remember to visit Mindset.Zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. To access all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at Mindset.Zone. Zone. And if you want to get a free copy of my book, Mindset Zone, the first chapter, please go to mindset.zone forward slash book. Today, my special guest is Sue Stevenson. Sue is the founder of Lifted. Fog, a global executive coaching firm. She uses brain-based strategies and positive psychology to help leaders succeed. She's the author of Impossible to Possible: Neuro Strategies for Healing, Humor, and a Reimagined Life. Welcome to the Mindset Zone, Sue. So happy that you are here to share your story, and I want to start with your journey in the corporate world that you were there for more than a decade and with an impressive level of success. And you even uh, speak about those time, uh, you use the term corporate brain to describe those years. So tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, first of all, thank you so much, Anna, for inviting me to join you today. Um, I'm thrilled and honored. So thank you. And um, to answer your question about the corporate brain, um, I think the the attitude that you bring to your work to your life um, influences what you do. And to me, the co- corporate brain is a particular mindset, and the the mindset that I adopted, you know, as it does, it morphed and changed over the years. I was raised to um, believe that women had no role to play in the business world, and so I never paid any attention until my grandfather invited me to hide behind the sofa when they were discussing business. And I suddenly began to believe that this was something I could do, but I had to be a bit sneaky about how I went about to get into the business world. And uh, so after many, trying many different careers such as teaching and so on, I eventually found myself on what I call the upward escalator. And I wasn't that ambitious. I just wanted to get into this world that I thought was very exciting where um, I thought I could add some value. And I found that I was on this upward escalator. That I, after a while, I thought I can't get off. I was being promoted. I, I obviously was seemed to be successful. And um, I've since analyzed quite a lot about that success. And I think it was just the fact that I was flexible. I was single. I was I had no children. I could travel for months on end. I could go anywhere I was asked.
1: Yeah. And you probably say you are determined to do a good job. You push through, you are there for them. They uh, they give you training. You did the training. I was reading your book and you really, how do you say, try to do uh, be an, a, a great resource for them because you start in human resources and HR and you really excel in what you are doing. Um, And I think one of the reasons, other than just my mindset of, I want to be,
0: I mean, I was a little bit of a perfectionist, which both has its benefits and its downsides, which we'll discover. Um, But I was um, also very business oriented as an HR person. I would study the world, the environment, what was going on in the countries where we operated.
1: And so I think that that contributed a lot to the success. And by what you describe in your book, impossible to possible, uh, you were uh, you are almost going uh, driving in a car 100 miles per hour, uh, and some parts of you were enjoying that drive, and everybody was driving at the same speed, so to speak. And in the corporate world, they love the high speed. Uh, and they demand that high speed without sometimes thinking about the consequences for everybody. Uh, but there was something, or do you say, um, an adrenaline associated with that, that fed you and kept you going in that upwards escalator?
0: Absolutely. The adrenaline, the dopamine. I mean, talking about corporate brain, you know. <laughs> desire to drive. I love to learn. I love to teach. And just this every day, you know, discovering new countries, new people, new cultures. And I got so
1: wrapped up and excited about it all. That you forget even the taking care of the basic things, because you describe how few hours you slept, how uh, so little time you had for yourself. And that constant moving from one country to the other until you land in here in a job in the United States, correct?
0: Yes, that's right. Yes. I, I moved um, my office, my job, my home, and my country over 50 times.
1: Wow. 50, 50, five, zero? 50, five, zero. yes. Wow. That is imp- absolutely impressive. And one of the things that I think actually contributed
0: towards my success in life is that I was able to navigate those differences. So whenever I would move, you had to make new friends, find out, you know, where did people hang out? Where were the business circles or networks? So I learned to adapt very fast when I moved to a different country or a different location or a different office, how to just navigate that change.
1: And then you kept being promoted. We got the opportunity of working here in the United States because if people, we have two people with accents in this episode, of, uh, both from Europe. I am originally from Portugal, if, nobody, if there is anybody that are a listener that is not aware of, and you are originally with your beautiful Scottish accent there. But- and I can hear your accent if you would like, but me. Maybe- <laughs> Will be better for another time. <laughs> yes, the we. Um, so it's a beautiful. Uh, and the, you were already at like uh, traveling the world. Uh, the United States. You had, I think, family year in the United States. So you came. Uh, where did you move first? In the east or west coast? I, I moved to a, a beautiful
0: um, penthouse apartment on the Jersey side, and I had a view not just to the Statue of Liberty, but to
1: downtown Manhattan. Yeah, must be absolutely breathtaking. So you you are you are living the high life and keep running and uh, juggling all the responsibilities that you have. And then you move from the East Coast to the West Coast to California, correct?
0: Yes. And that was right after 9-11. I, I was there at 9-11, so
1: that beautiful view... yeah was not was painful afterwards
0: so after one year i thought no i think another place might suit me better
1: and you moved to california but you still were in that eye demanding job keep running keep pushing and pushing and pushing
0: yes and in fact even more so um, as time went on
1: (laughs) and at the same time around that time you start to wonder what alternatives you had, correct?
0: Yes. Yes. I'd always wanted to set up my own coaching practice. I loved coaching and I know I was good at it and facilitating um, leadership development and executive development.
1: Because that was part of the things, the projects that you were leading, the things that you are being trained within the organization, within HR, and now how you progress to more executive, senior executive roles. So you... You, you knew coaching as a coachee and as a coach, and you, you knew that you had what it takes to make it if you start by yourself.
0: Absolutely. Yes.
1: And uh, because the the fascinating thing is like the curve balls that life gives us. When you are in that transition, thinking about that, life really took you in a big big adventure for lack of a better war, world, word a world war so tell us a little bit about that i began to see
0: that there were some physical costs to this success and this constant moving and the the challenges that i faced every day there were social costs you know i i didn't find myself being able to in- interact with as many people um, and there were emotional costs. But weirdly, I, I didn't even pay enough attention to those. I kind of ignored symptoms that were coming up for me. I, I covered up symptoms and, and things that were going wrong. And I never um, at that moment realized that things inside were going extremely wrong inside my brain and my body.
1: And what was like the the thing that happened that you could not uh, pretend that was not there?
0: Um, I w- you know with all these symptoms, with headaches and with I was irritable and um, not sleeping, as you said, and I had heavy metal toxicity. So I began to see different doctors, different modalities, and. Nobody seemed to give me any answers, and eventually my doctor said, "I think we should, you know, get an MRI on your brain." And uh, when that came back, he called me and said, "You have a brain tumor." Wow. And what a wake-up call that
1: was! Uh, because you were not expecting that. Did you ever imagine something like that to happen to you?
0: Not at All, I just thought that, you know, I was just tired, I was exhausted and you know I I knew I'd had some, not just acute stress, but chronic stress, but I had no idea. And in fact, if we think about optimal health on a scale of one to a hundred, most of us accept a level between 40 and 60% of optimal health. And I thought I was kind of in that range and that I was no different to anyone else and that I'd managed it well. And it, it actually takes us to drop below 40 often before the symptoms are so great, the pain is so great, or something like a diagnosis really th- just throws us at that curveball.
1: Yeah, because uh, you were that kind of. Person that was always pushing, even if you had a cold or something like that, you still do your work. You still always, or so they say, and the corporate culture really rewards that kind of dedication. But suddenly there was that stop sign that, uh, okay, now you have to pay attention.
0: It, it was so severe that I actually had to pay attention. <laughs> there was no option at that point. Um, If I had noticed earlier, I might have been able to step in, but by that time, the um, mass, I'll call it a mass now, in my head was growing and growing and sitting on my pituitary and causing all sorts of other impacts as a result of this growing thing in my brain.
1: And the, the fascinating thing, and I really appreciate the wonderful work you did in your book, because Uh, is a book that once you start reading, you really get you. uh, And I hope to keep a glimpse of it here in this conversation, because you really allow us to uh, almost be able to imagine yourself in the corporate world, uh, the good and the bad. And then that moment of the wake up call. And now uh, uh, because when we are, okay, a brain tumor can, a brain mass cannot get worse than that. But it got worse than that. It did.
0: I I went to the, you know, you, you think when you get a tumor, people say, well, you need, you know, chemo or radiation. So I began to see the specialists. I began to see the endocrinologists, the neurologists, the, the various uh, medical specialties um, and discovered they don't talk to each other. That was a, a <laughs> yes. thing I learned. Um, I had to become a bit of a, a detective and figure out the parts. And, you know, you go online and you research everything and eventually the the um the outcome was that radiation would not help this was likely benign um but uh, and chemo therefore would destroy more of my brain than was necessary and the the only po- slight possibility was surgery um either just to remove the mass or even to take um, a biopsy but the neurosurgeon um showed me a picture of a brain and why he couldn't go here and why he couldn't cut in here and why he couldn't do this. And I had a friend with me to make notes because it was one of those kind of fairly um, stressful appointments. And at the end of the appointment, he said, I cut, see on my shirt, it says I cut. I recommend that you walk out of this door. You don't let me cut into your brain at all. And I turned to him and I said, Surely there's something I can do because, you know, I'm a resourceful person. Surely there's something I can do. And he just said to me, it's impossible. That moment, I just galvanized into action. He said the best thing he could ever say. He said it meanly and he was very dismissive, but it was the best thing I could have heard because I radically moved into action.
1: And what action? So you got that diagnose, OK, we cannot do anything about it. It's impossible. Just resign to your situation. And for you, it is like they press without knowing, press that key that say, "Okay, I'm going to prove you wrong. So uh, tell us a little bit about your journey, because it's fascinating, your journey from that point on.
0: Well, I knew that I had resilience and I knew, I, you know, I, I pushed through so many things. I thought, Sue, use those same beliefs, the same beliefs that you can achieve anything And apply it to your health. So I began to just think about what were my thoughts, you know, change my thoughts from, oh, I'm going to die. In fact, weirdly, the other day I bought a book called How Not to Die, (laughs) which is extremely helpful. Um, But I began focusing on what do I need to do to get better, to reduce this thing in my head, to begin to move and show that doctor that he was wrong, that I could Um, get rid of this thing in my head. So I began to experiment. I think that's the only, well, I researched and experimented, which most people do when they get a diagnosis. And my research was very uh, disheartening because every case I found with the same symptoms, the end of the the paper would say, and at autopsy, we found. Now that means make it. So I never found anybody with the same symptoms who lived. <laughs> Sorry, I feel a bit emotional. Okay. Um, so I thought, no, I can do this. I can, I can find a way. So I kind of began to, to, redirect my research. And rather than looking at what was wrong, I began to look at what could be right, and what are the things that impact um, your your brain, and. I, I learned about you know, immune autoimmune diseases and how the immune system attacks it and how cortisol and chronic stress. And I realized i have been in chronic stress. In other words, it never never died down for about nine years solid. And as I learned about cortisol and, and all of the, it was like this big puzzle, this big stress puzzle. And I began to just put pieces together and just live healthily. Cle- so the, almost the first thing I did was um, think about toxins and cleaned out. A, a friend of mine was fairly uh, knowledgeable. She and I went through my house and we cleaned out everything that may have heavy metals or or chemicals that were affecting the brain and foods and materials and lipsticks and cleaning materials. We just just took them all out. And I started from scratch.
1: Yeah, you, you really didn't left one stone and turn. And it's fascinating from the learning how to manage the stress to cleaning from the inside out uh, to start to do more movement and the importance of your little dog for helping you to uh, go out, even with all the things going on, the food as medicine, the sleep uh, mental fitness you really and i i love what you you do in the book because you speak a specific i'm i was just reading the chapters of the book listed in there because you really took a holistic approach about how to uh, because i think your goal at the time was uh, was live the, the healthiest way possible correct yes and you 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 really try okay what what can I do to live healthy as much as I can?
0: And I began to understand that there's optimal health and there's what most people accept as OK. And I was not going to live in that OK world at all ever again. I was going for the optimal. So whenever there was maybe a range of, of you know, the the cholesterol or whatever uh, bio, bio data I had about myself, I wanted to be the best I could be. Not just into the normal range. No, I wanted to be absolutely at the best possible level in every respect.
1: And how long it took for you to start to see that you were feeling better? The, the headaches
0: began to go down quite quickly. I did have to take, unfortunately, one medication, which I do have to take for life, which affected the, it was called diabetes insipidus, which was about water um, and water management throughout my body, which helped a lot. But it did take a long time before I was able to really improve the energy to calm my mind. To And the way I did it was I just tried lots and lots of things. I call them neuro strategies because there were strategies about how to affect my brain. And the more that I learned, the more I realized that it was not just the brain, the gut and understanding that in the gut, we produce neurochemicals that affect our mood, that the, the dopamine that I used to thrive on is produced in the gut, 85% of it, along with serotonin, which is the happiness chemical. And if my gut was not working well, because I was not eating well, then of course, it would affect those chemicals that affect your drive and happiness. So that was a whole new discovery about the gut brain connection.
1: And again, in terms of the time frame, so you start less headaches, the medicine start to help you with some of the symptoms. The energy was took much longer to pick up. But when um, are we speaking months? Are we speaking years here? I, I'm still getting
0: MRIs, so I still could see that this thing in my head was growing for uh, the over the. It was really over the period of a year, but. Then um, I, I found a team um, at Stanford University that had a cross-disciplinary team. And when they invited me to go and uh, meet with this full team, this new team, uh, to maybe get a diagnosis and to get a some definitive answer, you know, we, we seek for answers. And when they asked me to redo my MRIs and my, my, all, my all my endocrinology tests, and I looked at the, I look, you're not supposed to look at your um, MRIs, but when I looked at them over that weekend, they was gone. The, the mass that was there was gone. And my friends said, Sue, you cannot interpret an MRI. You are not a neurologist. Put them away and wait till Monday. So I put them away, but I had this little level of excitement that something had changed. And um the appointment on the Monday confirmed they were fabulous. And they confirmed after five hours <laughs> it was an autoimmune disease, it was not a brain tumor, and that it had gone.
1: And 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 for me, the 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 moral of this story, okay, it's wonderful that it's not there anymore. Uh, of course, absolutely it's great that you are here healthy and strong now. But it's the lessons that you learn along the way, and how you are now using all those lessons to help others through your book, to your coaching, uh, leaders and executives that uh, you understand their stresses, their chronic stresses in many different ways, and you now. So tell us a little bit uh, how you keep practicing for yourself, and how. Are you using what you learned to help others? Thank you for that, that opportunity. The mental fitness part is, is a
0: big piece of what I learned and about how we can change our mindset. So first of all, I began to change the questions that I would ask myself and how I uh, responded to stress and how I began to say, it's not about managing stress, it's mastering it, it's harnessing it. How do I make the stress work for me? Because it's always going to exist, but I have to find a way to master it. And one of the the lessons I learned is that our brains can change and we can heal almost anything. I'm so excited about the power of the brain and the body to heal. And, you know, we talk about neuroplasticity, even our thoughts can change the way that our physical body can heal. So changing how I thought, how I viewed the world, uh, made a big, big, big difference. And humor began to play a role in my life. I began to study um, Humor Academy, which led to a certificate in, um, we call it a CHP. And um, I became a, a certified humor professional. <laughs> interesting about humor. And and when I talk about humor, I'm not talking about humor for jokes or entertaining or even humor that a leader uses to influence. I'm talking about humor for wellness, therapeutic humor that can be used for healing. And the, um, the, the kinds of humor is beginning to see funny. You're beginning to notice things when you're wandering around that are just funny signs or people And you cannot be anxious and laugh at the same time. So if we have anxiety or concerns, humor can help us get beyond those.
1: So it's almost training ourselves to see the humor around us in the small things. And then we become more aware of their presence and we can enjoy the, the death of seeing things, even tough things with the sight of humor uh, makes it bring positivity to it
0: so i have lots of humor practices that i now employ um on a regular basis
1: can you give us an example
0: um an example is to um i mean i i surround myself with with funny objects i have um an elmo muppet <laughs> uh, elmo um finger mu- a puppet and, you know, if I'm on a call and I have, there's a lot of people on the call and we're trying to move around, give everybody a chance to speak, but one person's dominating, in advance I tell them that Elmo might appear. And so Elmo just appears at the bottom of the screen and he just comes up and he stands for enough, let's move on. And people love Elmo. So it's a method of actually breaking the intensity of maybe somebody dominating a conversation But it also just brings everybody, even usually the person who is dominating, just smiles when they see Elmo come up, (laughs) just breaks that tension and brings lightness to the conversation.
1: Yeah. And so bring that lighter side, even in the business corporate serious world, we can have a laugh too there and, and enjoying so Oh, okay. You are helping people. You wrote the book about your experience, about the lessons, and what can people be doing. But I know that change is this messy process. That uh, yes, we can learn a lot, but that doesn't mean there are no. Uh, sometimes there are setbacks. So do you see yourself sometimes going back to old patterns, to old habits? Yes. So the method
0: of creating habits actually dictates, in my view, how sustainable they are. And I did learn better methods of... um, I used to be one of those people that had goals. I had weekly goals, daily goals, monthly, quarterly. And um, the process of setting goals got me in trouble because they were just... they, They pushed me too hard again. So I remember one time I wanted to change the habit of working late. And instead of asking the janitor to throw me out at 10 p.m., I just set a goal one year that all my only goal of the year was that I would see sunset every night. And the actions that I had to do to see sunset every night, either, you know, in the summer, maybe I was home and I would go out. In winter, I'd have to climb up onto the roof of the office building so that I could look out and see sunset. But that habit of seeing sunset every night had so many other facets about stopping pausing, taking breaks. And these were little habits that I began to build up. And um, I don't know if you know the author James Clear and his book on on atomic habits. And he said, you know, habits are not a finish line to be crossed. They are a lifestyle to be lived. Mm. And I love that because as long as we build them in and we have repetition and frequency and we have small incremental habits that compound on each other, then they're more likely if we repeat them every day to become uh, something that is ingrained. However, coming to your question about the setbacks, there are, you know, I, I put 130 things I tried. I have no idea which ones of those worked, but I'm, Pretty certain sleep was one of the very biggest factors for me because I was a very poor sleeper. I even had flip charts in my peak of my stressful years. And on sleep, one of my setbacks, and I'll just admit this today, I actually put in the book that I had become addicted to Ambien. And it. my belief was, uh, my mindset was, I will sleep well if I take this little pill. And if I don't take this little pill, I won't sleep. And that mindset was so deeply ingrained that it was causing, you know, I and I knew that drugs were not the answer and had to find a way to get off Ambien. So even though the habits, all the other sleep habits that I put in place about, you know, I had my rituals, I had the, the environment and I had the consistency of sleep times, I had not solved my sleep problem. And then by accident earlier this year, I um, forgot. I was on a a process of reducing the ambience by shaving bits off um, uh, through my doctor. And I forgot, I was um, on a skiing holiday and I forgot my ambien. And so I decided with permission from my boyfriend to go cold turkey and just say never ever again. I did not want to take any more drugs. And um, it's taken, that was in April, Um, We're now six months later and I'm up to six hours sleep, which is quite amazing. I'm aiming for nine. (laughs) Um, I was at one hour a night for many, many months, but I broke through and now I believe it's out my system. So that was a big setback for me that I couldn't maintain all of my sleep habits. Now I'm putting them back in place and I am confident I'm now in the right path without drugs.
1: Wow! No, you are truly an inspiration, and also the message that is the road to any change and any transformation. Because what you did is not just change; it's transformation. You transform your lifestyle in a big, big way. There are sitbacks, there are lessons to be learned, there are support to uh, to get, and and uh, we cannot give up when one thing doesn't work. We have to try a different thing and keep keep pushing, but in to a better place. And you've just reminded me of another
0: thing that I, uh, there two things that I learned. One was about that support. When I had my diagnosis, I thought, I can't tell anyone. I, I was embarrassed. I, there was um, a stigma about saying there was something wrong with my brain. And it took me, I only told nine people for quite a long time. It took me a very long time before I began to let it seep out a little bit. And then this year, by just writing the book, I've said, "Okay, the world is going to know." Yes, <laughs> but it's that that sense of of hiding something; it's invisible to others, um, and just hiding it away. And so, I actually volunteer now with the Invisible Disabilities Association, where we think about how do we help people to build a support network where at least they can talk about what is going on and they can have their voice heard because the other thing about this transformation is it changes your identity. And, you know, if we change so many habits, our identity has changed. I had identified for many years as a sick person. Now I identify myself as a highly healthy person who must keep going or, you know, things can slip again. So I've got to keep going and keep pushing through a little bit but not as much
1: yeah and be more in the flow of the health and wellness and i'm so grateful that you wrote your book impossible to possible neurostrategies for healing humor and reimagined life so uh, where people besides going and buy your book where do can, they can learn more about you
0: very active on linkedin i've just linkedin sue stevenson i use my name mainly i am on um, instagram I'm growing my hobby as a photographer because I also learned about awe and and being in the flow and the creative artist in me. And so I have Lifted Fog Photography. I have Sue Stevenson 13, which is both in Facebook and in Instagram. So those are probably the easiest ways to find me. So,
1: and I will make sure that I will put this in the show notes. So people just remember, check Sue on LinkedIn and Instagram for our amazing photos. And thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thank you, Anna. This has been just joyful is the word I'm going to use. Um, I I coined the expression, the joy of the journey and finding the joy in every moment we do. So I appreciate um, you inviting me. And um, I hope everybody listening has got something from this. And um, I keep doing my best to share what I've learned.
1: Thank you for listening and remember to visit Mindset.Zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. There you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at Mindset.Zone. And if you want to get a free copy of the first chapter of my book, Mindset Zone, please go to Mindset Thought Zone book. As always, I'm so grateful you are here. Expand what's possible for you, for the ones around you, for the world.